So do me a favor. If you are riding around the car right now and you got a child in the back, you know, go ahead and, and stop. Pause this recording right now, right? Pause this tape because this one is definitely going to contain some um, some naughty language. Nope, oh, some potty language. Yeah. Yep, yep. We're coming off of a uh, coming off of the George Floyd trial and verdict, and we thought it would be a good idea to do a special episode like we do sometimes. So, how are you feeling, Mike? Woo! I am feeling all of the feels. I'm exhausted, man. I am joyful. I am grateful. I'm I'm tired as shit. I'm ready to heal. I'm I'm fired up. I don't know if you can tell that in my voice. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm also full of tears, and and yet I'm hopeful. So, what about you? Yeah, joyful, determined. But you know, even though I am generally, I consider myself an optimistic person. You know, I can put my realist hat on real quick, and this is one of those moments. You know, I enjoyed the several hours of knowing that this rusty old piece of junk called the social justice system or the justice system, didn't just once again break down on the road to racial healing, you know? It actually uh, kept puttering along for us to progress a little bit. But there was a moment where I was like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, like, I think the whole world took a gasp of air real quick. <sighs> and, and I appreciate you reaching out, like, immediately after the verdict came down and was like, yo, you want to do this special recording? Because I feel like this is just not just a response to everyone saying it's justice. I don't. I don't think it's justice, right? I think right. this is not just a response to the accountability mm-hmm. that has been served in in response to the murder of George Floyd. But I also look at this as a challenge. This is a challenge for all of y'all out there who, who are calling themselves anti-racist. This is a challenge for all of those who who believe in racial equity. Those of y'all who are woke, right? Those social justice warriors. You talk it, you tweet it, you Facebook it, you come to all these damn meetings and, and you bring it up. You write solidarity statements. But now this is your chance to put some action behind it. So if you want to talk about being an anti-racist, if you want to post about, uh, what is it, go number four of anti-bias education, aka activism, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's put action into activism. And I'm saying, yo, y'all got 48 hours, 48 hours to take action, to bring this topic into your organization, into your classroom. Yeah. And when, and hopefully you actually do this, keep yourself accountable and let me and Mike know, send us an email and we'll, you know, we'll read, we'll read what people send us. Mm. If you have a question, or you run into a problem, send it to us. We would love to dive into that. We want to connect with you all, especially in this time. And so, you know, how, and on the bigger level, Mike, how, how do we bring this into our organizations? You know, I think people's natural inclination is to go and jump straight into a chat with, with the adults in your space. But if you would ask me, I, I wouldn't. I, I'd personally rather talk to children about this all day than than to adults. Why? Because too often adults are, are paralyzed by this fear. Too often people, and especially BIPOCs, right? We don't have necessarily have the language 
to frame how anti-Blackness, how racism lives in our organization, how it's embedded within our organizations. And too often, when we do gather, right, all of us in a room, white, Black, Asian, um, Pacific Islander, whatever, Latinx, Indigenous, no, let me let me reframe that, right? Too often when we gather in rooms of white people, right? It's too much about uh, surface level things, right? Too many times we're looking for sound bites to, to regurgitate, to make this work more palatable for people. Too often we are looking for affirmation from folks of color to know, hey, if I'm doing it right, rather than taking a risk and diving two feet into this work. And I'm like, yo, how the hell am I supposed to know if you're doing it right, if you won't actually have a real deep and honest conversation with me? Mm-hmm. Well, check it, right? Check it. If, if you can't talk about it openly within your community, then there's no way your organization is going to put the time, the money, the energy, and the resources behind this work. Racism is a pandemic. And your DEI initiative, your multicultural night, your international cuisine night, even though it is yummy, is not the vaccine. For us over here, right, it's it's budget season for us. And um, I assume it's budget season for many of us. So I'm like, yo, go to your leaders. Demand that your leaders' resources work if you really about this life. Send out an organizational-wide email acknowledging what just happened. Acknowledge about the separation at the border. Acknowledge how the increased violence against our Asian, Filipinx, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islanders communities, how that's actually affecting our mental health. But Mike, we don't have any staff for children of color in our center. What the hell does that matter? I feel like yeah, I feel like we should just create a bingo sheet full of excuses people be making in order to not do this work. So <laughs> let's call that number one. Maybe we can get a, like a, a, a diagonal line and I get to call bingo by the end of this. Mm-hmm. But saying I don't have any staff or children of color in my center is ridiculous. Because do y'all think y'all never going to go out in the world and never meet anyone that doesn't look like y'all? Also, if you're sitting on the anti-racism team, your equity change team, your DEI meeting committee, whatever, and you look around and it's mostly white, or it's mostly consisting of just the educators in your program, you are doing it wrong. You need to center BIPOC voices and make sure that you're giving them real power. And you got to make sure that you're also compensating them to take on this work. So power to oversee the resources allocated to them, right? The power to, to, to distribute and allocate the resources. Power to make sure that this anti-racism work is part of everyone's job description. Power to hold leaders accountable. And, and we ain't talking about adding this into their salary or giving them more, to- more work on top of their 40 hours. We're talking about compensating them for their brilliance, for their time, for their gifts, for their spirits. We're talking about not working them into the ground. So figure out a way that they can do this within their normal work week hours. 
And secondly, this work needs to involve staff, educators, board, families, and the broader community members. Because we're talking about organizational change. And lastly, I, I told you I was fired up, y'all. And, <laughs> and lastly, you need to look at every aspect of your organization. Your identity, culture, values, your mission, vision, purpose, your governing board, and their bylaws. How you evaluate, how you conduct orientation and onboarding, your internal communications, and your external communications your fund development, your programs, huh? how you show up and greet people, how you interact with the community at large. Because newsflash, misogyny, violence, and anti-Blackness exist in all of those and more. And they operate in such subtle and insidious ways, right? So we, we hired a nutrition coordinator a couple months ago who's a Black woman ex, and one day I heard one of my colleagues told her to go and get them their snacks. And I'm like, hold up, hold up. I had never heard them or any of them or any of my colleagues speak to our last nutrition coordinator like that, who happened to be white. And when you look at the whole entire context, right? Black women X historically and currently are overrepresented in domestic work. Work that has been always considered second-class work. Work that was rooted in slavery and white supremacy. You don't think you have internalized all of that from the history books, from what you've seen in me in the, in the media, and that that just didn't play out in what you just said. You don't think that misogyny, violence against her soul, her self worth—that's not anti-blackness right there, wrapped up in a nice little bow. So all in all, you got to ask yourself, what does justice mean to you? For me, justice means healing. It means reparations from the cause, from the, from the harm that was caused. You might not have been the personal cause of someone's harm, but your organization was. So let's be honest about all the structural and institutional ways that we have enacted harm as an organization. Let's humble ourselves and let's be vulnerable as an organization and be like, hey, yeah, we messed up. So if you're not out here in these streets speaking up, being the white ally you claim to be and making it known that we don't want lip service anymore, we need to do our part. If you're not prepared to do that, then yeah, I'm going to need you to go ahead and remove anti-racist from your LinkedIn profile and your resume. I'm going to need you like, Amir said in a previous snapcast to, to decide, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be an educator. Yeah. You know, I think, Mike, on the... I, and I, I had recently heard Amir talk, uh, give that presentation again, and, and, it, and it resonated once again. Like, why are you in this work? You know, maybe this job just isn't for you. Hmm. And, you know, one thing that he that he brought up was that there can be no separation of of personal and professional life when you when you are an educator. Right. You can't just be like, oh, no, you know, after work, I, I, I throw around racial slurs with my softball team and then be an anti-racist educator in the classroom. No, nah, that's not how it works. Some things are nuanced and whatnot. And, and the idea of racism is not. 
the practice of racism is nuanced, but the idea of racism is not that deep, y'all. Mm. And on that note, I think my challenge to people, Mike, and this is to the communities of color and the educators of color, my challenge to to all of us, and, and this is to you and I, Mike, as well, is to not to make sure that we're being aware that we're not being complicit to white supremacy culture Amen. by being fearful of uh, um, licensing standards, of curriculum standards, of checking the boxes mm-hmm. of your of your quality rating systems. You know, question: Is this actually capturing the children I serve, especially if they're black and brown boys and children? And, and, and other genders of children like is this quote-unquote best practice actually best practice where does this best practice come from you know i think as people of color and we've talked about it mike um we see education as uh, a pretty tangible way out it's a pretty clear avenue you know you do the work listen to the authority and you work hard keep your head down and things will and things will work out for you but no that's not that's not how it's going to work when the system isn't built for you, when the system doesn't acknowledge who you are, when the system, as you're saying, Mike, and I agree, when the system doesn't value your life. So my challenge to the educators of color and and administrators of color is I I need you all to take forty eight hours and think about which state rep state and federal regulations are you going to push back on. That will, especially the ones that have to do with learning outcomes and the things that quote unquote determine school readiness. What are you going to push back on? How will you decolonize your mindset before you decolonize a curriculum? And, you know, and and a lot of that is to say that we are, as people of color, we are immersed in white supremacy culture as much as white people are. And the only way we're going to get out of this together is by identifying those things and, and everybody press rewind and go back and listen to all the amazing suggestions that Mike just rattled off and put that into your thinking. Use all these ideas that we're presenting and that many other people are presenting. Use that as the cloth that is going to unblur the lens in which you view your role as an educator and, and uh, early care administrator. So there's two parallel tracks that I, I that we both have to do, right? One on the organizational level, and then one with our actual children. So when I said 48 hours, I'm serious, y'all. Part of my challenge is to take it upon yourselves to find ways to introduce this topic into your classroom, into your learning environment. But Nick, what's the most natural time to bring up topics, you know, uh, in the class? Yeah, well, story time. Literally, <laughs> and it's not a suggestion. But so yesterday when I was clickety-clacking away on my laptop and, you know, I have the news going on my phone and um, kind of softly so I can hear it. And all of a sudden the news anchor stops and announces the verdict and or, or announces that they're about to... Um, announced the verdict and and i hear an educator in the classroom next door firmly tell the children everybody quiet down and, it, and a child asks why 
an educator explain that the judge was going to say whether or not the police officer was going to go to jail. And, and I hear the, the, the classroom just settle down and I go over next door and I kind of poke my head to see if they're all looking or listening. And all the children are gathered around the teachers and these are school age children. So kindergarten to like third grade. Um, and you know, as all three verdicts were read out, there was just cheer, uh, eruption of cheers. And, and the, the, the children followed along because they knew that this was something of importance. And these kids being older, they had some idea of what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, this, they weren't lost on anything. They knew the names of Derek Chauvin and George Floyd and what was going down. And so it was cool to hear them all cheering about the guilties. And then I thought, oh, I need to go run down to the Raven Room where Tess is an educator. Tess, as you know, Mike, is an amazing educator, and she has really been leaning into that vulnerability and teaching to the times and really following the children's lead, but also following her goal and her value as an educator to make sure that these children have an experience that's rooted in social justice teaching. And so every Friday they do Black Friday, where they talk about somebody who died. So they've gone over Tamir Rice, Brianna, and George Floyd, obviously. And so when the verdict was read, I had to run down and had to announce, see if the test was following. And, you know, it's nap time. Most, there's like half, half, like half of the kids were half asleep. And I was like, Tess, are you watching or listening? She's like, no, what happened? You know, she got really nervous. I could tell and I thought I could hear her heart thumping, but maybe it was mine because I was also really psyched up. And I say, he's guilty, like really quietly. And she popped up. She's like, yeah, <laughs> and she, her arms go up in the air. And, you know, my first, my, like my first thought was like, this is more important than all of your children's sleep right now. Like, you know, this was an important thing. And, and so she, you know, she, and the kids kind of looked up at her, um, at her expression and, and she said, Hey everybody, you know, that person that we've been talking about and all the people we've been talking about, like Tamir Rice and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Well, that cop that killed Mr. Floyd is going to jail for a long time. And, you know, as adults, we had to definitely kind of make sure we had our filter on because there, there were some joyful expletives that wanted to come out. Um, but th- it was interesting because the kids, you know, they've been talking about this all year. Mm-hmm. And one kid like popped up and goes, yeah, black matter. And he's a young three-year-old, but, and he usually says black matter instead of black lives matter, mm-hmm. but we know what he means. And <laughs> so he's like jumping on his nap mat, chanting black, black matter. Another kid, who, uh, a young white kid, like, is doing this crazy looking break dance move on his nap mat, like just kind of spinning around and hopping. And he was like, yeah, go to jail. He's like, yeah, say his name, George Floyd, you know, just this exuberance. And, and I think that's, you know, one of those things that we always talk about when we provide early experiences for children. And this is a positive early experience. And it's unfortunate that we are happy the kids went through this. You know, because it was at the cost of somebody's life, and and yet it's important for us to embrace the 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 excitement and the enthusiasm that the children shared in knowing, or at least sensing, the justice for George Floyd. 
and so not too much later after that, uh, Tess led her classroom around Daybreak Star, uh, chanting, say, uh, say his name, George Floyd, for nine minutes and 29 seconds, you know, while, while banging on their, on their hand drums that we have. You know, and, and, and to directly answer your question, Mike, I highlight these brief moments because there is no ideal time per se. Mm-hmm. Every moment with children is the ideal time. Certainly scheduled gathering times are helpful and should be used to our teaching and coaching advantage. But, you know, it's those moments when you're quietly digging in the dirt alongside a child. And when they ask you if you're, if you're black, if your black lives matter, as did that young kid. He asked me once kind of gently touching my, my skin and be like, are you black matter? Asking me if I was part of black lives matter mm. or when, you know, you're casually walking from one place to another and a child says that they don't want their mom in the sun because she might get too tan and then she might turn black and then she might get shot by police. Or when a child tells you that their father was killed by a police. You know, these are all the moments where as caregivers and adults in young children's lives, we reassure, we support and expand children's feelings and ideas about the world. You know, and especially these days. You know, these are all all the moments are our, our ideal times. And um, why do you say that? Why is that? Because I think it's, you know, in these moments that we, we reach children and other adults, for that matter, with feeling rather than teaching techniques or, or cookie cutter sort of approaches to talking about race with people and especially with children. And we have to be wary of that, right? I think that's going to be on the rise because this, this is a new, new moneymaker in our, uh, in our field, Mike. And so we have to be careful for those really superficial approaches. And we have to every, and, and, and people listening to our words, you know, scrutinize what we're saying, critically think about the ideas that we're presenting. We have to do this with everything. And especially with all the new techniques coming down the line. And so I say, you know, when we teach with feeling and when we reach children and other people with feeling it, and when we model vulnerability and a discipline to remain committed to social justice teaching and critical thinking then we allow children to open that up in themselves too right i think sometimes techniques and and ways of talking can can feel harsh to some people and and in this particular framework i'm thinking of children right it's certainly with adults we don't want to prioritize hurt feelings over what needs to be said for sure but when it comes to children, we need to think of the age-appropriate way to have these hard conversations. And how do we do it in a way that is feeling, that is rooted in feeling? So for those keeping score at home, go ahead and mark, well, Mike, I don't know when to introduce it. Offer your bingo card of excuses. Because as Nick just said, you can introduce introduce it literally at any moment you know but boxers don't come to to their bout without doing some research on their opponents first and neither should you because dei diversity equity inclusion wants you to come with just a book you know you kind of read once and you check the box that hey i've done it or you know they want you to introduce some coloring pages one day and then you stuff it into their cubby hole and you never look at it again. And, and racial equity wants you to 
to march around the blocks with some signs. The anti-racism? Now, this work wants you to liberate these children from what they have internalized from this act that we just saw from the murderer Derek. If you're going to come and bring this into your classroom, yo, you got to come correct with it. You got to come with the truth. The truth that society views black people as threats. Yeah, I feel like you're about to cross something off the bingo card of excuses, too. And, you know, it ain't about what you know. It's about what you're willing to learn. <laughs> Damn right. That's number three, right? You, you believe children are capable, are competent, but you don't think they can handle a conversation about the truth. So you're just going to let all these other types of media with their subliminal messages about black is bad do the work for you? What does that say about your true belief in children, in the image of the child? You need to talk about how some people intentionally target Black people, and the full force of that attack amounts to the weight of someone's knee on their neck. But first, you got to introduce him. Mm. You know, it's interesting, Mike, as you were saying that, I'm thinking of the cliche saying that children are like sponge sponges. And I feel like that cliche uh, saying, I think for a majority of adults, it should be children are like sponges, except when it comes to racism, mm. <laughs> because they don't, it, for everything else that's cute and adorable that they do, it's, oh, it's, they're like a sponge. But when it comes to these heavy hitting things that, that are unsettling to the human experience, they're like, oh no, they, they're not going to notice that. I mean, come on, right? They're just kids. How, why, how would they pick up on that nuance thing? Exactly. Well, we, I'm, go back in our other episodes, y'all, and you'll, you'll hear us talk about that. But, you know, and, and people you might be asking yourself, and, and I've heard other educators and families ask, if the children don't bring it up, then I, I shouldn't touch on it because it's not child-led or emergent. And when considering emergent curriculum... In, and I think you, you set me up for... <laughs> For my fourth dot on our bingo list, right? Emergent curriculum, right? I, I'm, I'm gonna make some people upset here, but emergent curriculum reinforces whiteness depending on the context of your center. Mm. Yeah, and that's, I, I, and I think that last little bit maybe hopefully will settle those upset people depending on the context of your center. But tell us more, Mike. So, Think of it like this. If your center serves mostly white children and your curriculum comes from the interest of these white children, how likely do you think their interest is going to be around racial disparities? How likely will they be exposed to the racial injustices happening in the community? Now, I'm not saying all brown children are, are talking about the tragedy that's happening in Burma, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. I always get that wrong. I got to look at the Google Translate of that, uh, the, you know, with the phonics of that. But anyways, the hook on phonics of it. <laughs> but, but the interest I hear some of my children of color talk about as opposed, as opposed to, to my white children are night and day. 
And it's not to say, we're not saying you shouldn't honor emergent curriculum, but sometimes you need to add the provocations and topics yourself. You know, this is that, that balance that we're trying to strive for in the classroom between teacher-led and child-led, when to get in the center with the child, when to move out of the center. And it's the classic, meta, meta, uh, classic ball-tossing metaphor that the old-school pedagogy like Reggio Emilia um, promote. You know, the child throws us the ball and we throw it back. But sometimes if the ball is not being picked up, then we have to initiate that game. Mm-hmm. And when thinking about the recent events with Mr. Floyd, you know, you can ask, has anyone heard about George Floyd recently? Just as casually, you would ask, what do you know about garbage trucks? And, you know, children are going to spit out their answers. And you can correct them as you go along and as you gather details, right? Because we're teacher researchers. So, you know, you gather details about what they know. But the first thing I would do, at least, is humanize this man. State the facts. He was a father. He had a really big belly laugh. A lot of people loved him. I'm doing my teaching voice right now. <laughs> he had a daughter around your age. He, she's six, six years old. And as you go into the facts, humanizing him, making him relatable to the children, you eventually start pointing out the fact that and some people were out to hurt him. You can even, you know, throw it back to them and say, do you know why? Some people wanted to hurt him. And I'd say because some people think all black people are bad people. And because they thought this without knowing him, they decided to hurt him so badly that they took his life away. Mm -hmm. And you know what, Mike, I'm thinking. I I have. I have this voice in my head right now uh, uh, when I'm when I'm critically thinking about the things that we're talking about and, and things that we're presenting or whatever. You know, one of the uh, questions that I often run into is like, is, isn't this going to be too much for children? Aren't you? Isn't this going to scare them? Mm. You, you know, it might. Right. It might scare them. This is scary shit that we're talking about. Mm. But fear we can get over a little bit easier than the plague that is racism, Mm. you know? So yeah, if it's going to scare somebody a little bit, that's fine. I'm not going to prioritize that feeling over them growing up to potentially be biased and racist. Mm. So ask yourself what you're prioritizing because we can help children through fear easier than we can through the very subtle, the very nuanced disease that is racism. Mm. So Let's start by like working through our fears. But what might they, what, why, why they might ask you, Mike? Oh, as in, uh, why Uh, did they ask me why? Oh, I would say something like, uh, what was I saying? Oh, they said, I said something around what they decided to hurt him so badly that they took his life away. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the child, the children might say why. And I would say something like, um, well, they just assume he was doing something bad. 
They didn't ask him questions to see if he was doing something bad. They just assumed. That's like me telling you right now, and I feel more comfortable talking to children about topics at like a lunch table or snack table. So I would be like, that's like me telling you right now, little Johnny, at this lunch table that I think in two hours, you're going to do something bad. So I'm going to send you into timeout right now. And then I would ask them, is that fear? Mm. Yeah, or even trying to relate it to, you know, really trying to get children to think about, I, I guess, the concept of uh, crime finishing or punishment finish, fitting the crime kind of concept, right? Mm -hmm. um, what do you, and, you know, asking the, tr the children, like, is what happened to George fair? Mm. What else do you think we would ask children? I would say, um, what do you think his family feels? What about you? You can go back and forth. <laughs> uh, yeah, and maybe like, what about his neighbors? Do you have neighbors? Who are the people in your family? You know, do you? Oh, I noticed George has a brother. You have a brother. How do you think his brother feels? Um, you know, what, what do you think other black people feel when they see and hear this happen about George Floyd? Mm. That's a good one. I, I would say I throw back to, to what's happening, right? They might not understand George Floyd, right, and what's happening, but they probably see some people protesting. So I would say when you see people protesting and calling out George's name, why do you think they're doing that? And do you know who thought George was a bad person and took his life away? Which, of course, they'll most likely say no to. Um, and, and again, that's where we help fill in the gaps. Mm. And I think that's where you can be like, you can let them know that some people, from when they are very little, they assume all black people are bad. And then they get a job as adults like a police officer and hurt people like George on purpose. And I know when we watch movies and television or when we play games, we like to play good cop, bad people, or we like to think all police officers are good people, but that's not always true. And after setting the foundation, then you can move into action and, that component that Mike and I have brought up in the past of self-activation. Mm -hmm. like, I, I want to broaden people's scope about what we mean about action, right? First, you can't do this without setting the foundation. But when I talk about action, I don't just talk about like reading a book. Books are great. Absolutely. I'm not downplaying it. But that can't be your only thing. You got to figure out ways about, uh, uh, you got to figure out ways on how to implement restorative justice practices in your environment. We're talking about uh, perhaps watching uh, a play or a performance that talks about police brutality and prejudice. You know, before I, before jumping on, I was, not doing work and I was on YouTube and I saw something 
uh, around, you know, in my little things that, you know, suggestions, it said um, how to talk to kids about police brutality, right? No, it was, no, the, the title of it was Black Parents Explain How to Deal with the Police. And I think it was by like hi-ho kids. And I only got a minute in and I had to stop when one of the young person started crying, right? Because that was making me choke up because it was so real, so raw. And I feel like if you show that, all you got to do is get up into a minute. That will get the children talking. That will get the children going, whoa, why is she crying? Why are they crying? Excuse me. And I'm hoping perhaps that will spark children's interest. And then you can create a play of your own to educate, you know, their parents. Or, or just by having these intentional conversations with young children about what they can do to be an ally against injustice is critical. It's crucial. You can also create resources. You can in introduce new materials. And most importantly, you can connect all of this to this movement. And you can empower children to see themselves as change makers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to go back, Mike. Um, I remembered what I had wanted to say a little bit ago when you were talking about, um, you know, that some people, when you're, when you're explaining to a young child about why, why someone might want to hurt a, a black person and specifically a black man or boy, because, and you brought up this idea that, or you brought up that some people assume that all black people are bad. Now, the thing with assumption is we keep assuming if no one ever tells us otherwise. So that's our job here as ed educators, and especially in the early childhood education realm, where brain science is backing us up and letting us know that by nine months, a little human being is already categorizing people by race. Our little brains can already do that. Only nine months into life. I'm not even nine months into my direct new director job. Now I'm barely know how to organize, categorize budgets, you know, but an infant brain can categorize race. So what does that tell us? This is our opportunity to tell children a different story. So that way they don't grow up with assumptions of anybody. And especially right now uh, uh, of black people, because we need to take that anti-blackness and move it away out of the center and center blackness, pro-blackness, if you will. So like I said, DEI wants us to stop, right? After, after introduce, you know, introducing the book, what it, it was an anti-racist baby, right? DEI just wants us to stop. You just introduced diversity. Racial equity wants us to do, um, I like to think it's just a performative action of marching. Right, while giving very little context to the gravity of the moment. Now, anti-racism work, they want us to unpack and dismantle the concept that all police officers are good. They want us to, you know, anti-racism wants us to unpack the notion that children can't do anything about this moment. Anti-racism work wants us to disrupt the the thought that being an ally is only statements of solidarity you know that performative action piece 
anti-racism work shows that restorative justice is a process, not just a product. I, I like the whole uh, connection piece that you're bringing there, Mike. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, because one of our goals is to have children be insightful, critical thinkers. So having them critically think and connect this to, to just the overall historical significance of a need, which I don't think anyone really thinks about it, right? Which I think, you know, I think that's a whole <laughs> napcast right there in of itself. Yeah. You know, I, that's, uh, it's funny. That's something that came across my mind was the whole concept of, and really just this, it's a literal embodiment of, of things going on, whether it be a fist or a knee mm -hmm. and it, it, it I, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I'm kind of beside myself thinking about the significance of a knee and some of the other examples, um, do you know, so I guess, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you were thinking with the knee? Yeah, I, I think it's hilarious, you know, like four years ago when, when people were taking knees, people flip shit and now we look at yeah. it now and everyone's doing it, right? Even lawmakers are doing it. But bringing it back to children, right? Say it's two weeks later, you know, you can come back to the conversation and be like, remember when we talked about how that cop uses knee to hurt George? Well, you know, sometimes people need for good things too. Hmm. To which they'll say, why, Mike? Why, Mike? Why, Mr. Brown? Mr. Yeah. Teacher Mike? <laughs> Uh, it's a little bit more cuter when they do it, but no. <laughs> yeah, man, I don't do a good like kids' voice like you do, and I don't. I don't talk. My voice doesn't change all that much to kids. Sorry, you can delete that stuff. Bobby's <laughs> still hitting puberty on my end. Um, <laughs> so you know, I would say, well, the bad police officer kneeled on George's neck, and and that was a bad thing that caused George and. And it hurt its family too. But some people like Martin Luther King Jr., he kneeled in order to get justice. Do you remember what he kneeled in protest for? You know, and I bring up Martin Luther King because who doesn't teach about, you know, Brother King? Right. And then, and then, uh, you know, I, and, you know, where I thought you were going to go with it too, and, and the idea of what I think um, what's also at the forefront of our minds with Dr. King is Colin Kaepernick, you know, um, an NFL player who took the bold, I wanted to say bold step, but he, he, he boldly knelt and took that knee, you know, and, and it was a simple, um, a simple and yet powerful symbol, a physical act, you know, and it's really interesting when we look at um, black and indigenous um, protesters in the past the peaceful physical acts and gestures tend to send the other side or the status quo all astir you know and yet when someone is ruthlessly murdered they wonder why black and brown people are 
burning down buildings. Yeah. And I, I always love giving different examples than Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, which I don't think we teach enough about. But you're going to bring up Colin Kaepernick. Let's talk about uh, Mahmoud. Mumia? Mahmoud uh, Abdul Rauf, right? And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Apologize for probably butchering brother's name. Um, who's the NBA star who refused to stand for for the anthem back in like 96 or something like that. But tying it back into the kneeling thing, right? Because I love themes. <laughs> you know, I would also bring up uh, along the lines of, of, of kneeling for justice, right? I would bring up how people go to the mosque, people go to church, people go to synagogue, right? And people need to pray to say nice wishes to people to show respect. Yeah, you know, I um, I also see it as, I like the way that you're putting that because it's putting in my mind, I see it as it's a form of humbling oneself mm -hmm. to a greater, bigger picture or being, you know, in that spiritual sense that mm -hmm. you were talking about. You know, and when something bad or unfair happens to people of color, people now knee all the time, you know, to protest peacefully, that simple physical gesture. You know, what other ways can we protest peacefully? when we see black people, especially being hurt. And just, and just in that example, I feel like, what do we tie in? We tied in religion. We tied in, you know, morality. We, we, we tied in, um, you know, we tied in so many different things that I don't think people necessarily go to. And when you're teaching about one subject, there's so many different ways in which you can connect it and, and activate different parts of an entire being. Yeah. You know, when I'm thinking about, again, coming back down to the classroom level and to, with children and, and people we work with, you know, what do we say about our roles as teaching teams as well, as we are these components of the village? right helping to raise the child what do we say about this work and what we're talking about mike and and, and what happened with the verdict for george floyd um for his justice to be for his justice to be upheld you know what do we do as teams thinking about you know our roles as teaching teams i i, I gotta steal this this quote from from a conversation i had with uh you know, our homegirl, Ijima Jordan, and yeah. others I actually had this week. And, and they made the point that policing isn't just a criminal justice thing. It's also prevalent in ECE. And they were talking about how we emphasize dominance and control over our, over our BIPOC children, as well as our staff of color. And we really force them to be compliant over their engagement and we criminalize BIPOC curiosity. Right. You know, and it's, um, and, and my, my brain, when you were saying that went right to um, operating under compliance and, and thinking about how um, federal and state co compliance issues, sure, are, they, they serve their purpose in giving us boundaries as centers and as teachers 
that gives us parameters and boundaries of how we should operate so we can stay in business essentially, right? So we don't get um, sued um, in this very litigious society we live in. And in that sense, it forces teachers to be compliance driven rather than um, you know, teaching with that feeling that I brought up before. And, and when we're that, then that's all you see children as. And then when you're seeing children as empty check boxes <laughs> that you gotta like kind of check off and meet numbers, then we, we miss the point and the potential of education and especially of early education. Um, and then it's interesting too, I was speaking with some uh, people in our community that, you know, when communities like, when school communities that are often just keeping their head above water financially and donations come rolling in and opportunities for grants come rolling in, um, we want to take them all up as much as we can. We, it's hard for a lot of these communities and and mine included to say no, because you don't know when this opportunity of uh, resources is gonna show up again. So we almost in this survivor mentality also embrace a sort of hoarding mentality. And then, you know, that it, it kind of just perpetuates a organizational mental health. In, in touching upon just that that accountability and that checkbox, right? We 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 create these accountability standards. We we create our own internal audits. We we create uh, assessment tools or we adopt assessment tools, and none that I've seen have accurately or, or holistically evaluate children of color for their brilliance. And instead. It just, I feel like it just looks for ways to demonize them or to help them internalize that they are less than. Mm -hmm. Especially if we use deficit language, if we're engaging in deficit actions. What I mean by deficit action, I, I, I had a child in my class today and he, sure, he wasn't listening. And I desperately wanted him to listen. But I, I looked at this Asian American kid and I said, I can't keep calling his name. I can't keep going and saying his name over and over and over again, because that is in telling him to stop, because that is me policing him. Mm -hmm. And I know that when he gets into the K-12 system, as soon as he's out of my care, that's all he's going to face. Right. So I said, I had to give him this leash, right? I wanted him to, I wanted to rein him in, but I had to give him this leash in order for him to get his wiggle outs, in order for him to, to self-regulate himself, even though it was causing a stir in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to make sure I wasn't engaging a deficit action so that he walks away and goes, hmm, I am now a problem child. And he internalizes that. And then our assessment tools and our accountability standards and our audits, they don't, they don't center, you know, BIPOC experiences. When we, when the children are in our care at all times, right? We might say, well, I center BIPOC experiences in our curriculum, but we're not talking about that, right? We're not talking about just during Black History Month. I'm talking about even when you're lining up to do potty breaks, 
center BIPOX in everything that you do. Yeah. Um, when you were, when you were talking about, you know, tools that are, we need to create, there need to be tools created and ideally by the communities that are being evaluated, um, those holistic approaches, you know, that highlights the brilliance of, of brown and black children. Um, one, it's interesting. It's like that brilliance is there. Right. And I think that's where you were really talking about, but when, when the standards and assessments are implemented are basically done through white implementation, Caucasian implementation, that brilliance of black and brown children becomes dim mm. and it's, and it's a, an erasure component. So even if they're not outwardly saying, and, 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 you know, I think back in the day it was like, no, like I know back in, uh, Indian boarding schools, like, no, if you're speaking your Indian tongue, we're going to put a needle through a part of your tongue that won't allow you to physically be able to make those noises. Oof. Now we've moved from the, the, the direct approach, you know, like how I think a lot of us appreciate our racism served cold and just tell it to me straight rather than <laughs> systematically hiding it for it to bite me in the ass later on. Um, we've, that's where we're at now. So we move from that direct approach to, to this very subtle erasure. It's like a, the, like a, the Trojan horse virus of back in the early two thousands. You remember that? It's yeah, like, yeah. that's, that's what education is infected with in terms of racism is that it dulls and dims the brilliance of black and brown children and other BIPOC children, uh, BIPOC communities. And and it subtly just uh, nudges us into being compliance in compliance to whiteness, and therefore moving us away from that center of blackness. And I think that's why it's so hard to convince some people that racism is still alive. That's why people like to say we live in a post-racial society because the the racism of yesteryears mm -hmm. doesn't look the same. Right. And I keep going back to, you know, uh, well, it's not, um, it's, it's, I'm not physically being violent to you. I'm not in a, in a hood. I'm not in a white hood burning mm -hmm. a cross. And it's, right. oh, okay, but you're still doing English uh, only instruction, right? You're only promoting that. And that's not the same as putting a needle in someone's tongue. Right. But it gets to the same effect. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to your, your, your story that you highlighted, um, you know, what I think, what I heard you sort of self-reflecting on is, um, a lot of us teachers, we aren't necessarily, uh, always encouraged and taught and set up to look for children's need in the behavior, right? A lot of our teachings and pre-service education is identify a behavior as a, and if it's disruptive, quote unquote, disruptive. Don't see it as a need, but see it as something to manage and to give the kids to a, a, a kid tools to work with, you know, so they can meet their self-regulatory skills. Um, and yeah, you know, I think when you were talking about, you know, your racism of yesteryears, I, I thought of like, I've known some um, old car guys who were like, ah, oh, cars these days, those aren't cars. It, that's what it kind of reminded me of like, oh, that's not racism. And you imagine like 
that's not racism. Back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I think that is that is that's our final take off of our bingo excuse board. It's not racist to increase children of color's civic engagement and success in school, especially when the K-12 system still can't decide if they even want to include ethnic studies program in the curriculum or not. Mm. It's not racist to set up structures that makes it harder for families of privilege to not hoard resources. It's not racist to to remove those who are violent. And once again, it's not the physical violence, it's, uh, I mean, it is the physical violence, and it's the mental, emotional, spiritual violence that they uh, place upon, they do against our children of color. It's not racist to go beyond your initial reaction to George Floyd and and think about how you want to commit to Black, Indigenous, Latinx, biracial, South Asian for the long haul. It's not racist to want a collective future where Black lives, Black minds, Black voices matter. But you know what what is? Do you know what racist is? Things like rejecting $6 million worth of funding for the next three years, like the Idaho state government just did, which is forcing families to pay more out of their pocket for childcare. Because they think that by wanting a fair start for fair, for, because they think that wanting a fair start for children of color, that we would be, and I quote, indoctrinating Idaho children with topics that aren't acceptable in a politically conservative state, end quote. That was, And what that translates to me is like, we are putting our hat in the ring of complicity and uh, to racism and white supremacy, and that's okay. And it being Idaho, I'm not that surprised. But, you know, I do, you know, I live, I mean, for four years of my life over at Wazoo, I was right next door to Idaho mm. and, and and come to find out it was like the more liberal part of Idaho, <laughs> which is, which isn't saying much, but um, it, there, there are a number of people of color out there. And I think, you know, we have to also bring up the point that not all people of color are going to be alike or be like-minded right and so it's fair to say that that there could have been a good chunk of um migrant workers or or or, uh descendants of migrant workers who might be on the conservative side of things so it's but even still the government had a choice to make in that right they could have yeah it's that is disappointing and think about when you don't accept six million dollars worth of funding who is that going to hurt yeah and yeah it's gonna hurt your 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 children of color your your migrant workers Mm -hmm. the refugee communities right but you know me as as much as i love talking about how we can walk back the ways we are devaluing you know our children of color's lives are in 
specifically in this conversation around Black lives, ah, bro, there's, there's a crisis at the border right now that I think deserves some love and attention because children are still being separated at the border. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, well, it, I don't know, man. It's just like this dump bucket of just bad, like just, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, like how I felt when, when you, when you, me and Amir were talking about George Floyd being murdered a year, a year ago. Yeah. When we did the, is America anti-race or anti-black and I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm still kind of just like, yep. Yeah. Mike, they, they still are. And, (laughs) And, you know, who who knows what happens with even some of the children who don't get detained? Like, who are they being taken by in while they're en route, you know, and being trafficked around? What about the murdered missing indigenous women that is still going on? Black trans folks. Man, it's like the simple request to just ask people to consider not being an asshole. You know, it's like, come on. Uh, talking to talking to children about race I feel like it's so easy for me but I I get to this border situation and I'm at a loss of words mm-hmm. so uh, how are you supporting your community in, in thinking through ways to talk to children about this well I came into it um, you know again like our classroom our educators are pretty proactive, have been pretty proactive about these things. And um, I can't say specifically if they've talked about the children at the border. Um, I do know that they regularly talk about murdered, missing uh, indigenous women and, and talking and they've broached the topic of what does it mean to be kidnapped? Mm. You know, and, um, and then, you know, I, I, I'm sure many educators out there, and especially in the state of Washington, when your phone goes off with an Amber alert, you know, just randomly, children are going to want to know what that is. And so we've talked about what that is and what it means and what is kidnapping. And essentially, you know, I think we, we would want to frame that concept of kidnapping into integrate that into the framework of talking about the children at the border, that our country's government is kidnapping the children of these families. That's essentially what it is. I mean, you can wrap it up in all the legalese that you want, but when we break it down is that you're separating families. And, and we know if we, if, you know, if the United States was founded as this, it's the American family is the fabric of the United States. Then we're just kind of taking that fabric and, and literally tearing it apart. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I guess I don't have a, a, a great answer except for how can we think about framing the concept of kidnapping to that situation? Yeah. What I, what my head went to was, the, the Chilean government back in the 80s, I think, 
and I mean, I think it was also the Argentinian government where they would take during the military, you know, they would take the children. And uh, I remember reading one story where the, a mother, I think it was in Chile, where um, they went to, you know, she went to the hospital and after giving birth, they were like, we're going to do a blood test on, on your baby and then never brought him back. And that's just another way of, of kidnapping, right? And um, I don't know, I'm, I'm sick. I'm, I'm yeah. sick just thinking about it. And it, it uh, also reminds me of, um, I've been reading this book, uh, well, one of many books, <laughs> but it's the, uh, I forget what it's called, or this is their land or something like that. And it's, um, and it's called the, the tragic story of Thanksgiving. And it, and it talks about um, everything that led up before the moment of think or the event of what we know as Thanksgiving. And then, um, but it sort of gives us a roundabout history or this well-rounded history of the native people there. And one thing I didn't consider is, is that, I mean, one thing I knew is that, you know, before Thanksgiving, Europeans had been over there for a while. You know, it's been, it was about a hundred and plus years that they were already just kind of visiting the East coast of the United States. So the natives, they already knew about them. Um, Europeans wisened up though, and they began to kidnap children and bring them back and bring, um, and also, you know, kidnap women and then basically breed guides and translators that they could then bring back to the United States to this side of the world um, where native people were living and then continue their trade and barter. So, you know, this, it's like what we were talking about before, Mike, it's, it's that damn cliche of history repeating itself. And it's not right. It's these, it's the institutions that keep allowing this perpetuation of systemic forms of oppression. It's not that deep. (laughs) Like, Come on people. (laughs) So do you have any thoughts about how do you talk about like the morality of this with with, with kids um, or just with adults? How are you communicating that this isn't just ethically bad, um, this is morally just unjust? Or do you even think that we should be talking about it? Yeah, um, I think... <laughs> You're, yes, I, th- I think talking about it is much like holding in a fart mm-hmm. and, you know, you're, be- you're better off letting it out. <laughs> and, 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 and it's, you know, it, it may go okay and it may not go okay. And that's, o- that's okay. But at least you get it out and you at least start the process. <laughs> oh man. We're recording this kind of late, everybody. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh but yes we should talk about it and you know it's interesting i think can we separate morality from empathy i don't think we can Mm. right empathy is a huge component of morality so it you know you're you're, how do we talk about the morality of it is i think just getting at empathy and and we do this with children all the time and so we got to just find those tactful moments of 
essentially trying to communicate how would you feel if you were in this situation? And again, it goes back to that idea of like, yeah, we, there might be an element of fear in, in being scared and, you know, scaring children. But is that more important than them growing up with racist ideals? Mm. You know? Um, plus, yeah, fear is easy to get over. Racism is a lot harder to work through. All right, so so let's wrap this up because um, it is late. So my last kind of provo- provocation is is about mental health. We um, we have our first keynote, so we're we're recording on we're recording this with the week of our learning series conference, and our first keynote is happening in a couple of days, and it's featuring my homegirl Elise and. She's she's fearless. She's brilliant. She's um, an East Asian infant toddler program coordinator and a mental health specialist who is uh, operating in Minnesota, right, right in the backyard of, of George Floyd and, and what's going down. And she has helped me. She has helped keep me sane and, and fighting and inspired. And, and I love her for that. And so this is less of a question, I guess, and more of an opportunity to just normalize conversations around mental health for children and for adults. How have you supported uh, or, or promoted mental health awareness and emotional well-being uh, of the people in your life? Well, I think you know, at our um, at daybreak, we've. Uh, part of being the Seattle preschool program is you get like access to a mental health specialist. And so this person who has worked with daybreak before I was there, um, you know, has does regular check-ins and, and it is genuinely curious about the adults in the children's lives. Cause she knows, you know, the children are going to be as well as the adults are. And so she's making sure that the teachers are taken care of. And she, um, she has uh, definitely asked me on more than one occasion about my sort of gauge on how parents might be feeling. And so, you know, that's then on me uh, as on the leadership team um, that I need to engage with families and and see how kind of get a temperature gauge on that, see how they're doing. Um, Other than that, it's just, I think, coming open, open heart, open arms or, yeah, open heart, open head. Oh man, it's so late. Open, <laughs> open heart, open ears, and an open mind. Like, you know, come, come, I think more than ever, being cognizant of those three things um, has helped me to just. It's. I I really feel like in this last year, Mike, I've become a better listener, and I think with like the Napcast has certainly helped with that. Um, when you and I talk offline about things, um, yeah. And, and I think just keeping to those three sort of tenets, um, keeps my own mental health like going and really to understand that, like, I have a choice in how much stress I want to take on and, and really, I'm really just taking, I, I, I acknowledge and understand that there's a lot of just shittiness happen, 
But one thing I can control and influence simultaneously is how I walk in this world. And so if I can model what I would like to see, as Gandhi says, you know, then then I then I then I've done a, a better job than most. I did I did a better job than Derek Chauvin, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I two things, three things. When you were naming all those body parts, I thought you were doing head, shoulders, knees, and toes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and uh, uh forgot the second thing. But the third thing is uh, I, I hear you on that. It's it, for me, it's definitely about um normalizing these conversations about mental health and inspiring hope and well-being. One one story, one advice one napcast at a time i think it's also about empowering people within underserved um underrepresented communities so you know our immigrants our refugees our indigenous our lgbtq plus community to um develop positive coping mechanisms to reach out to seek it to um, not look at it through sort of like growing up in my culture, we, we thought mental health, seeking that out and talking to a therapist was bad, right? Was show signs of weakness. And so flipping that on its head and showing that it's, it's for our well-being. Mm-hmm. It's, you know. It's as Amir says, right? We got to center our joy. Mm. We got to center our, our what makes us joyful for the quality of our being is what he says, and 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 I think that's a, a big thing that's super important right now, and and to know that like it's okay to not rush, yeah. and to not it's okay to just slow down and and to not get something right, you know, just keep trying. So you know. Racism is there. But what are you actually doing about it? That's my question for everyone. And turn that question into an action. Mm. And you know what I forgot we did? You know what we didn't do at the beginning? Mm. Hi, my name is Mike. My pronouns are he, him. I'm the senior. You're right. Where I, I told you, I was so ready to just jump into it. So, who are you? I'm Nick. And I'm the other co host, pronoun he, him. But you know what, Mike? I think our identity in this is definitely overshadowed by, by the spirit of Mr. Floyd. Drops Mike. <laughs> All right, brother. All right. I'll catch you. Be blessed, Mike. You too, and everyone else. Yep.